is the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Good afternoon. I'm Callie Buchanan. Welcome to the Queensland Country Hour. In the next hour or so, you'll get the latest on the situation for Queensland beekeepers caught up in the latest Varroa detections and lockdowns in New South Wales and Victoria. And no, you're not imagining it. Diesel is pretty pricey at the moment. Look at some of the impact on the average diesel price. And can the mining industry hit its 2030 sustainability targets, says a new report out. A detailed look at what needs to change if they're going to make it. That's all still to come before one o'clock today. Let's start with that situation for beekeepers. Those with hives stuck in four Varroa mite declared surveillance or purple zones in southern New South Wales can now move them out. But those with hives in the red eradication zones are still waiting for news of their fate, as are those in Victoria. Now, it's estimated about 44,000 hives are in those purple surveillance zones in the Sunraysia and Riverina region, where the pest was discovered in almond orchards. There's another 30,000 or so thought to be in the red eradication zones. All of those cases have been linked to that Kempsey cluster. There are now 231 infested premises in New South Wales. The Australian Honeybee Industry Council's Chief Executive, Danny Leferve, says the southern detections are different to those in the state's north. Yeah, the DPI have been doing a lot of work to try and get those, those bees moving. They've done a lot of risk assessments. It is a unique uh, detection compared to any of the other zones. It's been a very low mite level, a recent movement on a pollination event where there's unlikely to be uh, transfer to hives. So um, thankfully the DPI have managed to work out a way to be able to uh, destock the orchards and disperse the bees off those areas because it's just too high a stocking rate and density to, to be able to hold bees on. Now, they're not just allowed to go willy-nilly. Um, they are in a controlled fashion, so they'll be treated as dan- dangerous contact um, premises. So those bees will be tracked and they are required to do a higher rate of surveillance alcohol washing on those bees once they move. And so that applies from now, immediate movement? Correct. They've updated the emergency order online. So the beekeepers in the purple zones from those four zones on the southern New South Wales, those almond zones, just the purple zone beekeepers are able to move now. Flowering has completed in a lot of those areas and the bees are sitting there and and they're hungry and they do need to move. And do we know where the hives are heading? Uh, Most of them will be heading locally uh, onto canola or or onto the next pollination um, job. Uh, But they will be followed by the DPI and tracked and further surveillance will be conducted on them. And and what about movement out of red zones? Will there be a decision made on that soon? We are working on that. Again, we've just got too many bees at a very high density on orchards that need to be destocked. Um, We're not sure of what those conditions will be, but it's unlikely that they'll be able to move freely. Um, They'll have some significant uh, conditions attached to any sort of movement. And what would happen if we left all these hives in those purple and red zones? Well, we know we've got hives sitting on armoured orchards up to five to six hives a hectare, uh, compared to where the normal stocking rates in the landscape might be half a hive or a hive hectare. So significantly high densities. When the bees run out of the resources, which is what's occurring now, they'll start attacking each other 
and fighting and eventually what we call robbing, uh, stealing the honey from each other until uh, they kill the hive. So we end up with a quite a big biosecurity risk in itself in, in bees transferring diseases like American fowl brood between each other. Uh, and so it's a situation we just, we just really can't have all these bees staying in those high-density areas uh, for a long period of time. And what about Victoria? Do we know if beekeepers can move hives out of the surveillance zones that have been set up there? So in Victoria, there is only a purple zone. And we've been working with AgVic today and they've been in the meetings with New South Wales as well to make sure that their requirements align. Uh, We are confident that we'll be able to see movement out of the purple zone in Victoria in the next day and it will be very similar requirements to that of the New South Wales movements. Okay, so that might happen in the next day or so? Correct. And do we know how many hives have been destroyed in those red zones in the Sunrage and Riverina regions? At this stage, no hives have been destroyed. So Um, not even the the infested hives? The infested hives have had strips put in them today and, and yesterday and the day before. Uh, which will minimise the risk of any transfer of mites. Um, and they're being, until we make a decision about what happens with those red zones. Do we know how many hives have been infested in those four sites? Uh, they're in the single numbers. So um, we know two of the sites only have single hives. Another site has a couple of hives there. So very low numbers of infested hives. And, and they've had mitocide strips placed in them. So any any uh, phoretic mites in those hives will have been knocked down. That's Danny Laferve, the Chief Executive of the Australian Honey Bee Industry Council. He was speaking with Kim Honan. And there's more detail on the situation for those New South Wales and Victorian apiarists online. Just search for ABC Rural. Head to abc.net.au slash rural. Uh, if you've got any concerns or you'd like to talk about this issue, you can send me a text message. The number's 0487 993 that's 0487 992. Now, about 11,500 Queensland hives are caught up in the purple zones in Victoria. They're still waiting to know when or if they'll be able to move. Queensland Beekeepers Association Secretary Joe Martin says the situation is changing all the time. This is very much an evolving situation um, and from hour to hour we can see um, the situation changing and and moving in in, in different directions. But um, probably first and foremost, I want to point out uh, people's points of truth with regards to this situation. Um, We are seeing an awful lot of speculation that's going on, on on social media and things like that. And what I really would urge Queensland beekeepers to do is to make sure that you are accessing information, the latest information, uh, either through the Queensland Beekeepers Association or ARBIC, the Australian Honeybee Industry Council. Uh, Both uh, the Queensland beekeepers and ARBIC are completely across uh, the situation. And, And trust me, we are losing sleep so that we can attempt to um, you know, best appropriate ourselves with the, the situation that we find ourselves in. Uh, so to date, at the moment, we currently understand that we have got 11,500 honeybee hives that are situated in Victorian almonds orchards. Uh, now, of those hives, there is a, a, a volume and a percentage of them that are 
uh, somewhat stranded within those purple zones at the moment. Um, I'm pleased to report that we don't know of any beekeepers that have been caught up in uh, red and eradication zones. Uh, but what the Victorian government is basically doing at the moment is, is working through how to best manage uh, an imminent biosecurity um, emergency that could be unfolding on those almond orchards. So uh, it, it is literally an hour by hour piece at the moment uh, and we're hoping to get some clarity from the Victorian uh, department to understand exactly what their plans are with regards to all of those stranded beekeepers within that uh, purple zone at the moment. So yeah, so of that 11,500 honeybee hives, which is representing, um, you know, around about a tenth of the population of Queensland commercial honeybee hives, uh, is unfortunately caught up down there at the moment. And it is a no movement zone. I've got to stress that. Um, there, there is uh, operational staff on the ground and we are very, very aware that there is um, emergency services. So Victorian police are also on the ground and they're making sure that uh, people are staying put. Uh, and that's the most important thing to do at the moment. Stay put until we've got uh, concrete information and concrete direction. But it is, it's definitely a very challenging time um, for a lot of acres that have you know, made the decision to travel south. Uh, and unfortunately, at the moment, they're really not sure what their immediate future is going to look like. So waiting at the moment to get more information out of the Victorian government, and I understand that when it comes to those in New South Wales, there's been some relief around the purple zones, but we're still waiting to get the latest on the red zones in New South Wales as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. So there is a, there's another major meeting um, that will be going on today that is looking at how to best manage the situation with regards to those red zones. Um, the New South Wales DPI did come out with a move to allow the, the purple zones uh, with some very, very restricted and, and, and structured movement. Um, and those beekeepers that were in those purple zones have been granted permission through a permit application system, but they'll only be allowed to conduct that one move where they'll be needing to be monitored and um, adequate surveillance, obviously, to, to ensure that those bees uh, didn't come into contact with Varroa mite and there's no presence of mites in those hives. So it is it is a very, very tricky situation that we find ourselves in. It, it, I have to emphasise it couldn't have come at a worse time. So we're very, very keen uh, to get some clarity on what those plans are within Victoria and then that will help us with our um, consultation with government and obviously government's decision making um, when it comes back to the immediate future for those 11,500 honeybee hives. Have you had any indication from the Queensland government that if you are able to bring those hives back that there could be an issue coming into Queensland? Yeah, so there are some um, very robust conversations that are going on at the moment, um, and and I, I really wouldn't be able to speculate on exactly what uh, our beekeepers can actually expect at this point in time. Um, there, there's a number of options that have been put on the table, and, and certainly QBA has been afforded the liberty of, of having conversations with them, but I, you know, I must reiterate that this is the decision ultimately of Biosecurity Queensland and the Department of Agriculture and Fisheries. So uh, we, we can voice uh, <laughs> our position, but ultimately um, the responsibility of making the decision is with the department. For Queensland beekeepers, my message and call to action today is the conditions are brilliant here in the southeast. We're experiencing um, some, some little bit of warmer weather. You can feel the humidity popping up. So it's a really great day to get out there get into your hives um, and please start, you know, conducting your, your spring 
disease management and, and disease inspections. And uh, please, by all means, make sure that you're doing your varroa mite ch checks. Um, do your alcohol washes, report them through to the department. Uh, you can do that through the, the app on the B123 app um, through Agris. You can also do that through the desktop version, which is accessible uh, by simply going into the Department of Agriculture and Fisheries website. Uh, and alternatively, you can actually ring up over the phone 13 25 23 and uh, make those varroa mite uh, surveillance reports. But it's really important. Um, whatever the way that this goes, beekeepers must become proficient with understanding how to look for varroa mites um, and all exotic mites for that matter. It, it is fundamentally now a part of your husbandry practice. And if you're not doing that, you will be left behind. If this situation does go pear-shaped for us, um, it's that practical skill application that's going to help you to uh, look look at your bees and manage your bees moving into the future. But it is, it is a very, very concerning time, a very concerning time. And anyone out there listening, um, you know, if, you, if you're feeling for our beekeepers, the best way that you can support them at the moment is by buying Australian honey. Yeah, the best thing that you can do so is support our beekeepers. They, they are facing, you know, one of the most significant hurdles that they have ever faced. There is a lot of anxiety within industry and I have had many late phone calls with beekeepers that are questioning their future. Some of them are already telling me that they've got uncertainty about moving forward. So we need to embrace them with a virtual hug. And I think the best way that we can do that is by um, grabbing a couple of extra jars of Australian honey at the, at the supermarket or at the fruit shop and um, showing your love, showing your love. Queensland Beekeepers Association Secretary Joe Martin and that number again to contact the Department of Ag to report your alcohol wash results and it's important to do that even when they're negative that gives a picture of how the containment is working. So that phone number is 132523. That's 132523 to get onto the Department of Ag. Of course, you can download that app as well. Search for BBEE123 in your app store. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 19 minutes past 12. Scenic Rim beekeeper Murray Arkadeef is one of those with bees stuck in the declared purple zone in northern Victoria. He says it's an extremely stressful time. Currently we've got about 1,100 beehives that we took down ourselves for the pollination job. Uh, all of those were tested for varroa mite before leaving Queensland. Gone onto an, or an orchard there at Lake Powell where there's about another sort of 30 to uh, odd thousand beehives in that orchard. And uh, we're currently just sitting and waiting to uh, get the final official word from Victoria that proof of freedom has been received and that should be received today. So you're across the border then in Victoria then? are you in? Yeah, the, that's right. Are you in one of the zones where... Yeah, a... we're in the purple zone, uh, what they call the purple zone. It's a 25-kilometre circle from Euston where the red detection, where a detection was made. We're, uh, yeah, we're stuck right at the bottom of the purple zone, unfortunately, in Victoria. So what have they told you so far? Because I imagine this was all unfolding and there would have been a lot of uncertainty, especially over the weekend. Oh, the pressure and stress and concern has been enormous. Um, you know, there's well over 100 beekeepers caught up in this. It's a significant number of the east coast of Australian bees. Um, yeah, it's been back and forward. It's been a lot of meetings, a lot of nights and a lot of 
DPI staff and and uh, Ag Vic and you know Queensland DPI and New South Wales DPI trying to do their best along with all the beekeepers. But yeah, a lot of fear and uh, an extreme lot of anxiety. The floral resource in the orchard is finished, so there's nothing there for them to eat. Um, so you've got it. It's basically say like a feedlot of cattle where they've uh, run out of food and they're just stuck in there. Uh, the bees are sort of packed into the orchards because almonds need a very intensive pollination. Uh, they need a huge number of bees over a very short area, small area. So those bees have run out of food. The um, almond orchard blokes, of course, want to spray because the formation of the nut is most vulnerable soon after the flower's been pollinated. And uh, so that's been officially declared in New South Wales. And then we expect the, um, from what everyone's been told in meetings and things like that, it's going to be coming out today in Victoria. There's already Queensland beekeepers in their trucks, almost at the Victorian border who left yesterday in the hope that we'd see a change. And they'll be loading up probably this afternoon or tomorrow. And I'll be hopefully loading up myself tomorrow. It's Mari Arkadeef and Apiris speaking to Jennifer Nichols and... Yeah, some very stressful time for those Queensland beekeepers and beekeepers across the board. We'll keep you up to date as that situation evolves. Of course, you can always get the latest update online at abc.net.au slash rural. And for those beekeepers in their trucks raring to go back to Queensland, I've got uh, some, some news for you about the price of fuel coming up next. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. The Australian Institute of Petroleum's most recent weekly report shows the national average price for diesel is at an eight-month high. It's at 212.6 cents a litre. That's an increase of 5.7 from the previous week. Now, as the cost of living issues continue to soar, small regional and rural businesses are struggling to absorb those rising costs. Madeleine McCosker filed this report. Tambo Livestock Transporter Jared Johnson pays $15,000 a week for diesel and he's worried prices will keep rising. He says now that the national average price of diesel is at a 10-month high, passing on the rising cost to customers is unavoidable. Uh, look, in my business, it might be you know, $15,000 a week or something that on average we're paying for fuel. Um, yeah, I mean, beginning of last year it was probably... Close to uh, probably $11,000 or something like that. So it's been a considerable jump now. It's probably, yeah, the best part of uh, 50% increase since the start of, start of last year with the current prices. It's something that we have to monitor and um, we have to pass on. And so obviously we can't absorb that kind of, kind of hit. In the last six weeks alone, he says prices have risen by 30 cents. Yeah, it's, it's just got to be a flow-on effect, um, basically right through the supply chain. The, you know, the increase in fuel is going to affect every little every little part of the supply chain. So at the end of the day, people can expect to pay more at the supermarket for, for everything. The rapid price jumps are putting increased pressure on businesses all over regional and remote Australia that rely solely on freight. Rose Leggett runs a grocery store in Longreach. She says since 2019, freight costs have doubled for her family-run business. Right across the board, that affects everything you do. Um, for a small family business, you're trying to cater for everyone. You've got a lot of staff that really depend on you week to week for their um, income. So there's a lot of facets to it, how it affects you. It's not just what you sell out the front door. Just like Jared Johnson, Rose says passing on the price increases to customers can't be avoided. 
She says as the cost of living crisis continues to put pressure on people, customers are changing their shopping habits. The majority of people are really looking for specials now, so we've really increased where our specials offer, which, you know, it affects us straight in the hip pocket, no doubt about it. But you've got to try and balance that so that you're taking care of the people in your community because without them you don't have a business. Rose's daughter, Rhiannon Matthews, is a florist in Longreach. She's expanded in recent years from selling bunches in the grocery store to having her own storefront. We are in a position where we can't just go to the local markets and pick a bunch of flowers up. You know, everything else is really tight too, so it affects not only my business as a whole, but everyone else's pockets have only got so much in them. She says it's not just the increase in freight that's tightening the margins on her small business, but it's rental prices, electricity and the cost of the flowers themselves. In the space of seven days, Rhiannon says the cost of imported carnations went from $5 to $9 per stem. Everything's so tight now, people are being so careful, which we have to do. Um, one little surcharge in one area affects such a big thing because it's not just like our our flowers, it's our clothing, it's our food, it's it's all our services that we need, it's our doctors, it's, yeah, it's all got to get here somehow because obviously it's got to travel 1,200 kilometres at least. And so we might have to pay three lots of freight charges before we can pass it on. That's where the issue is. That's Longreach florist Rhiannon Matthews ending that report from Madeline McCosker. You can see more on that story online. Head to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour. It's 26 minutes past 12. A Herculean effort will be required from the resources industry if it's to have any chance of meeting Australia's 2030 sustainability targets. Now, that's according to a recent report by business services firm Deloitte. Mining and metals sector leader Nikki Ivory says it's time for mining companies to stop talking about targets and start taking action. So the world is aiming to decarbonise over the next few decades. And you hear the term net zero by 2050 bandied around a lot. So that is broadly speaking where most countries are pulling towards, Australia included, but with an interim target to 2030 of a 43% reduction in our baseline carbon emissions. It sounds like a lot as a layperson, is it? It is. It's not an easy task. It's going to take a Herculean effort to achieve that. And it's not that far away either. I mean, is this, is this an obtainable target, do you think? Seven years. So we focus quite heavily on that. Seven years, seven ways to act. And we talk a bit about what we think companies need to be doing now to make it achievable. So what do companies need to do? Where do you start? So there are a number of things, and it it is a holistic, um, you can't just, it's not just about decarbonising your energy sources. It's it's about bringing all forms of sustainability into what you do. So we talk about integrating a circular economy principles. So we're an interconnected ecosystem, and we really need to work together. You can't do this on your own. We need to really genuinely value the natural systems around us. So the water, the air everything that we we operate out in generally remote areas and the economic value of nature is really critical and and once we understand its value we'll treat it a lot better 
We need to invest in sustainable water management. Water is critical to health on the planet, but also to mining operations. We need to focus on climate adaptation and the next wave of decarbonisation projects. So we actually need to be doing this, not just talking about it. And then we need to partner, not just transact. Partner, you know, I talked a bit about the ecosystem. We can't do this on our own. We need to do it in combination with others. And we need to communicate really well. So obviously there are mandatory reporting requirements that are coming in. It's not just about that. It's about genuinely, transparently communicating what you're doing, what you can do, what you can't do, when you'll do it. And then last but not least, we need to invest in people, in our future leaders. The young generation, they're the ones who are most concerned about what the future of the planet holds for them. We need to be embracing them, listening to them, bringing them on board, taking their ideas, innovating. Do you think enough companies are acting fast enough to meet this target by 2030? I would say there's probably a lot more that should be done. I think it's going to be a challenge at the pace at which companies are acting now. Because I suppose we we hear so much that it's that big end of town, it's the miners, it's the farmers that are, you know, creating these greenhouse gases and they're the ones who need to act. So is there, I suppose, enough out there to demonstrate that there's at least those first steps being taken? Well, I guess one, one of the first steps that a lot of companies have taken is to talk about what they're going to do, so to set a strategy. And we've seen a lot of that. So there's a lot of strategies out there. But I think it's now the tactics and then acting on those tactics. And then, you know, it's a constant review process because a lot of the technologies that are going to be adopted don't exist yet. So you've gone constantly innovating and reviewing and then you've got to transform your business. And I think the other thing, so that's the sort of acronym we have in our report, start, just start. Strategy, tactics, act, review, transform. Seven years down the track, Nikki, if you get out your crystal ball, will we be there? I think we will achieve some of what we are setting out to achieve. It is an interim step. I think it'll be a little bit of a wake-up call that if we want to get to the, the, far, you know, the longer-term target, the net zero by 2050, we're going to have to do a lot more. So I suspect we probably won't fully get there, but hopefully we'll have made great strides. Deloitte's mining and metals sector leader, Nikki Ivory, speaking to Tara Landcraft. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 29 minutes to one. We'll check in with the Weather Bureau on the latest situation and a bit of a look at some of the impact of the not severe but still quite unusual storm activity yesterday afternoon, particularly in the southeast. If you've got a weather report, I'd love to hear it. 0487993222 is the number to send me a text message. Now, there's change afoot at the Reserve Bank. And if you're a close watcher of the interest rate updates, you might be interested to hear some words from the incoming new governor, Michelle Bullock. She's given her first speech in the job and she's used it to say climate change could make it harder to control inflation. Here's political reporter Evelyn Manfield with the details. There's a couple of reasons that Michelle Bullock has used that first speech to talk about climate change. One of the reasons is because she says climate change will make it harder to control inflation. And she said that inflation in Australia is still too high. And so controlling inflation really is her top priority when she moves into that job from the 18th of September. Now, um, 
the reason that climate change can impact on inflation is because extreme weather, you know, bushfires, flooding, that sort of thing can cause supply shortages, which can cause supply shocks and drive up prices as well. She also points out that global warming can make inflation more volatile and make it harder for the central bank to decide on the best interest rates. Now, that's a really interesting comment from Michelle Bullock there as well. She said interest rates may need to be raised again to curb inflation, which is a bit different from what we were hearing from outgoing Reserve Bank Governor Philip Lowe. When he um, spoke a little earlier this month, he said the worst is over for interest rates. So take a listen to Michelle Bullock at this speech yesterday in Canberra. Hotter temperatures and more extreme weather will disrupt businesses. They'll damage property and lower productivity growth. Actions taken to reduce emissions might present adjustment costs, but they'll also present opportunities. Indeed, while there's much uncertainty in this area, there is general agreement that a timely and orderly transition will be the less costly approach in the long run. That's some interesting times ahead. That's incoming Reserve Bank Governor Michelle Bullock and that report from Evelyn Manfield. We'll check in with the Bureau next. Know a young person from regional Australia with a story to tell? Let them know they can enter the ABC Haywire competition and tell it like it is. I love being on the farm. I am learning English. You matter. So does your mental health. Entries can be a written story, an audio recording or a video. It is just as cool as it sounds. Winners get their stories on the ABC and take part in the Haywire Regional Youth Summit. Enter at abc.net.au slash haywire. And hurry, the competition closes September 1. I think it's only a couple of days away. Better get those applications in. This is the Queensland Country Hour. It's 26 to 1. In a moment, we're going to hear from some growers that were affected by a couple of little storms that sprung up in the southeast yesterday afternoon. For now, though, let's check in with the Weather Bureau on the forecast and some of that impact. Phelan Hennefy, good afternoon. Good afternoon, indeed. Now, we did see a few little storms pop up. Not severe, but uh, definitely some rainfall and a little touch of hail from the reports I'm hearing. How widespread was the activity yesterday? Yeah, indeed. We did hear several reports of, of small hail dot around the southeast and you know, around the Gympie area and up along parts of the Wide Bay, particularly inland, we did hear reports of, you know, large accumulations of small hail reported resulting in some some local roof damage as well. Now, today there's a renewed risk of storms around the southeast. Well, this time the atmosphere is a little bit more energetic, so it does carry the the severe risk as well, and that's large hail and damaging winds during, particularly later this afternoon and during the evening period. And again, it's those areas, you know, particularly particularly Gympie westward, Gainda, and the eastern Darling Downs as well, you'd say east of about Oki, that, that particular stretch down and down to the scenic rim at risk during this afternoon. Storms already beginning to kick off around main range, and that's only going to become more active as we go through uh, later this afternoon and evening. And this time, probably a greater chance of some isolated severe activity with, as mentioned, large hail and damaging winds. Definitely worth keeping an eye on the Bureau's website for those warnings as they spring up. Is the uh, is the activity likely to continue tomorrow? Now, tomorrow, the, the weather system driving it all is going to push further east. So the focal point tomorrow, again, the Wide Bay Burnett and the southeast coastal districts, and this time, any storm activity that could develop, that does develop on that could affect the more coastal areas as well, whereas today it's probably more inland areas 
that could see that uh, severe activity. The risk, though, the severe activity is going to be isolated in nature, but still a risk tomorrow. The system does clear off uh, later tomorrow, so we'll see the weather settling down for Friday as well. And what about conditions across the rest of the state over the next couple of days? Now, across the rest of the state, we still got the chance of storms today uh, across more more parts of the, the central inland. That's up over the central highlands of coal fields. And down over the southern interior, there, there east of about Augatella as well, you got the chance of maybe an afternoon isolated shower or storm popping up as well. One thing to note as well is um, we've got a change moving through, uh, a southwesterly change. It's in the far southwest now. It's moving through. That's going to... That's going to push in across the interior later today and during tomorrow. It is going to result in increased fire dangers as well as it does so. Um, so we are looking at uh, high fire dangers with some locally extreme there up over parts of the northwest, the Gulf Country and the Darling Downs come tomorrow as well. So that may result in some fire weather warnings being issued later today for these particular areas tomorrow. And that's due to that drier uh, southwestly airflow moving across the area during tomorrow. So that will be a watch point. But the main shower risk uh, today and tomorrow very much more over the southeastern part of the state. What's that, that southwesterly change likely to mean for temperatures? Yeah, it's going to cool things off. So today temperatures, particularly in the, in the interior and to the east of that system, well above average, you know, anywhere from 5 to 8 degrees above average there across parts of the central southern tier and parts of the southeast. Tomorrow, though, we'll have, we'll have probably temperatures drop back, back to near average, probably a little bit cooler than average if you factor in that tomorrow is the last day of August mm. and we're moving into September. So probably for in keeping with September, daytime max is probably that a little bit below average across parts of the southwest tomorrow and a, a bit of a fresher feel to the weather. And that, that fresher feel probably extending across most of the interior during tomorrow as that change moves through and then in across parts of the the, the central and southeast during Friday as it moves through. But the fire dangers like to remain elevated as it does so and still a risk of some extremes uh, in the fire dangers along parts of the southeast, even into Friday as well as that change will through. It's not a particularly windy change, but things have dried out pretty significantly mm. over the last couple of, uh, over the last several weeks as well. And that's what is resulting in that kind of, that ramp up in the fire dangers. Yes, definitely worth keeping in touch with your local brigade and if there's any uh, any permitted burns no, no longer allowed, you're doing that mitigation, definitely keep across those warnings as that situation develops. Now tell me, Phelan, what are we expecting uh, from the coastal waters over the next few days? Yeah, the coastal waters, the winds up particularly across the central and northern half today easing back, so... So it's been a while since we've light variable winds over mm. over much of the central and northern waters. It looks like that way from tomorrow. Maybe a little bit, still a little bit of a, a moderate southeasterly sticking around up over the peninsula. But for areas, particularly up along the North Tropical Coast and Townsville waters, particularly much lighter winds to come over the next few days. The winds further south, though, light and variable initially today, but they'll probably freshen for a northwesterly direction tomorrow. Uh, that system rolls across the southern half of the state. So a bit more of a breeze from a northwesterly direction tomorrow, and then we see that southwesterly, that west kind of southwesterly change moving across. So a bit more of a wind over the southeastern waters um, to end the week as well. But we're not talking strong wind warnings; just a bit more, more of a of a pronounced pickup in the winds to end the week, and then the winds will tend back round to the southeast here as we go through the weekend, but no strong wind warnings expected. Well, we'll keep our eyes peeled for those storm warnings and potential fire dangers. Phelan Hanafy from the Weather Bureau, thanks for your time on the Country Hour today. My pleasure as always.
You are listening to the Country Hour where it is, uh, what are we looking at, 20 to 1 at the moment. If you've had any weather at your place uh, worth reporting, give us a bell, send me a text, 0487 In a moment, we're going to hear from a couple of uh, growers that were affected by those little storms that sprung up yesterday afternoon. And as always, keep in touch with your local ABC for any weather warnings that affect you and head to the Weather Bureau's website if you need more details. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Yes, a nervous watch for some of the fruit and vegetable growers in the southeast as that storm activity develops. Now, large amounts of small hail fell throughout the Glasshouse Mountains and Gympie areas late yesterday. Fingalime grower and ag science teacher Jade King had students on her Peachester farm just before the storm hit. We heard that it was coming, so I sent the students off uh, on the bus and they're only 8 k's away the school and they didn't get hail, but just after they'd left, we got masses of hail coming and whilst it wasn't huge in size, it just was uh, constant and I think, like I've never had a hail storm last that long. It went for about 15 minutes straight of just loads of ice coming down and so it looked almost like it had snow on the property and so yeah it was quite extensive I suppose in comparison and gee it just froze the area afterwards so very cold afterwards. What sort of effect did it have on your crops? Yeah that's probably the hard part. I just got an order in from Sydney markets because prices have gone up because finger limes are on a, a low at the moment and being out of season. Yeah I've lost probably all of that was on the trees at that time just because they'll be easily knocked off in the off-season. So a bit of a problem. Um, And then our vegetables, obviously, this young seedlings got quite damaged. I think they'll come back, I'm hoping. I would have lost a few of that. And the strawberries, obviously, I feel for all the strawberry farmers um, out there. But, yeah, they definitely damaged (laughs) that. So can you put an estimate on what it may have cost you? Uh, I wouldn't like to. Um, (laughs) Just uh, the finger limes alone would have been quite a few thousand at this stage um, because of the pricing of them out of season. And then there's the long-term damage of trying to get everything back up and established, I suppose, um, the vegetables that we've lost and the, the strawberries, but mainly it would have been the finger limes that are due to their pricing out of season um, and the fact that we kept a number on for now to be able to harvest out of season. And, um, yeah, we didn't see this one coming. How nervous are you feeling knowing that more storms are predicted? Uh, yeah, the future um, ahead, I suppose, yeah, it's meant to be predicted throughout this whole week. I don't know if I can lose anything more anyway at this point that's of that same value. So what would have been lost has been lost. I'd be nervous for everyone, though, I suppose, that was lucky enough to avoid this one and hopefully they don't get hit by the next one. Talking to a few farmers around the area, it's just so hit and miss. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, I mean, where we got it and then just down the road didn't even see hail. So it was very, I suppose, narrow in its banding, but hung around for such a long time. So, yeah, it was it was an interesting hailstorm for sure. Well, I notice there's a lot of people rallying around you thinking of you at this time. Yeah, no, it is a beautiful community that we live in and I think very blessed to be farmers in, in the Glasshouse area. That's finger lime grower Jade King with Jennifer, Jennifer Nichols. Now, Sam Pike grows pineapples in that same sort of Glasshouse Mountains area. He says it was a pretty unusual event. 
they were very small little cells that just sort of popped up out of nowhere and dumped 20 odd mils of rain pretty quickly and very isolated little areas of hail in it. And you're saying the hail wasn't typical I suppose? It wasn't normal hail for us you know it usually comes in here quite big and sort of chunky and you know that sort of thing but it was quite small pea-sized hail and just lots and lots of it huge amounts of it really in certain spots. It looked like snow on the roads in parts of the Glasshouse Mountains. Yeah, parts of it out the back of town, towards where the quarry is. They had tonnes of it out there. It almost looks like it was snowing, really. Did it cause much damage to your pineapple crops? No, that sort of hail probably won't do too much damage unless it actually gets in the heart. You don't want the outside of your fruit getting marked? Well, it's probably more the plants that we've got coming up because of the shape of them. They catch it all and it sits down in the heart of the plant and sort of freezes the plant. So that's sort of something, that small hail, it can be just as bad, but probably bad for a different stage of the crop. You're always rotating your crops. Um, What have you got going on at the moment? So we're just doing a bit of picking now. Um, We're just starting to harvest. So I don't believe it would have caused any damage on fruit to be harvested. It probably didn't come down. Yeah, it wasn't big enough to, I don't think, cause too much damage. Um, And we, yeah, we just didn't have the volume. And it didn't really, where we were, it didn't have the wind drive behind it. So it pretty well just fell straight down out of the sky like rain. It was sort of quite a bit different. And how's your crop looking after um, last year's natural flowering and you've had higher prices this year? So we're just, we're still picking through some of the fruit that was affected by it, some of the plants that were affected by it, especially by the, the volume of rain that we got that year. It is a lot better than it was for the first six months of the year, but yeah, it's not the greatest spring crop we've ever picked. But It's been so dry too, Sam Pike. Yeah, it's been very, very dry actually. We planted some pines about a month ago and we got 20 mils of rain last night and it didn't even run down the rows. It just soaked the whole lot in. So pretty good indication how dry it was. So what's happening with pineapple prices at the moment? So the price has come back a little bit to somewhat of a normality now. You know, just with a bit more volume, it's going to probably settle somewhere close to where it usually is. So there'll be plenty of supply for spring and the price will be back to somewhat of a normal price. So people won't be paying the exorbitant prices anymore. Oh, that's great news for pineapple lovers. Yeah. And hopefully it settles somewhere in between where it was and where it has got to. That's sort of where we're hoping. You know, it's good for the consumer and it's good for us, you know. They pay a little bit more, but we're taking a little bit less, so. Does what they sell for at the shops, though, reflect what you're getting paid? Well, no, that never's the case. But, you know, shops, they've got to make their margins too. We, you know, we look at it and think, maybe their margins might be a bit too much, but... Anyway, that's up totally up to their business and we don't sort of understand too much about that. Of course, we'd love to be getting, you know, a bit of what they're getting. But like I said, you know, we don't know exactly what their margins are and how much they've got to sell it for. So They're predicting more hail, potentially. What's that like watching and, and keeping an eye on things? Well, up until a few years ago, we'd never really had a bad hailstorm where we're, we're located in town here. But, you know, we never used to worry about it. But now, after we've had that one reasonable one, we think, oh, geez, every time you get a storm on the horizon, you think, oh, is it going to be that again? But, you know, history says that where we're located in Glasshouse, you're pretty, you're going to be fairly unlucky to get any damage. So, That's pineapple grower Sam Pike with Jennifer Nichols. And there's no warnings on the Bureau's website right now, but uh, definitely keep an eye on that and... Stick around on your local ABC's Facebook page and listening to the radio. If anything severe springs up, you'll hear about it. It's 12 to 1. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland.
Now, I'll never forget heading down to the breakfast buffet at my hotel when I was on holiday in Thailand a few years back, and I was just struck by the tiny, tiny bananas that were part of the spread. If you've ever had the the privilege to travel in that part of the world, you might be familiar familiar with them. They're pretty different to what you'll see on a shelf in Queensland, around about the size of your, your thumb, really. They were delicious, though. And it's interesting that we might be seeing a bit more of them around Queensland very soon, as Sean Jackson from Daintree Fresh explains. There's a banana that's been around. They called it sugar banana many years ago that that the Asians use. And if you go to Bangkok or Singapore, you'll find them on the plate growing out in the bush by small farmers. We have some here and I've started to grow more and more of it. and, And we currently send it to the Asian part of Australia. We send it to Cabramatta and Sydney and it goes to Sunnybank and Brisbane and, and so on. Um, there's, a, there's a very good developing market for it because they love it and they like the hands so there's a full family of bananas. But they're extremely sweet, extremely tasty, easy to fit in a lunchbox and would be good for kids. It's like a snack size. It's like the size of your finger really. Yeah, yes yeah. it is. And, it, and, it's, and it's you know, we, I know bananas have been pushed by the supermarkets to be enormous but most of us cut them in half and use half at a time. <laughs> These things are just a fantastic little snack. You can probably still taste it in your mouth, on, mm. even on top of the melons. Yeah, mm. it's very different. Um, why have you, why have you grown this type of banana instead of your, your average Cavendish that the regular Australian consumer you know will go for? Oh, same reason. I, I I live on, I'm a fruit bat, as as it stands, and I live on fruit and flavour, and I I, I recognise flavour. I can't believe other people won't come my way. So far, I've been right in most of these things and and I think farmers it's 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 the pressure of doing business and making a profit has overcome their clarity as customer needs. The sugar banana is it is it Panama TR4 resistant from a grower's perspective is it uh, is no. it a good crop? No, it's not great. <laughs> from a grower's perspective it's a bit tricky. It's a big big plant. They get up to 20 feet tall and so it's hard to bag and look after them. Um, they're pretty tough, but they're Panama susceptible. And, and that's one of the reasons, as you pointed out quite rightly, it's a three-hour drive through nothing but bush here. And we, we're quite isolated. And as long as we keep up our biosecurity, we, mm. we, we, we generally should be OK um, of keeping those diseases out. So I think there's a niche both to grow up for the Asians and Australia. I would love to expand it. I think if your average Australian ate them, they'd buy them. Yeah, but yeah. it's hard to get in their mouth because the banana industry is a pretty full one. But it could be it, Lakeland's an ideal place for you to grow it because it is separate from those other regions and that uh, current Panama TR4 spread. Yes, correct. No, so far, you know, other banana farms have got Mackay's and Collins both coming up here to escape mm. Panama, and um, we seem to be living without it for the moment. And all the farmers up here are very careful. It comes at a cost, but we're very careful because our ground is our future. That's Sean Jackson. He's the owner of Daintree Fresh at Lakeland. That's up near Cooktown in the far north, speaking to Bridget Herman. If you see Bridget travelling around that Cooktown area at the moment, say day, give her a wave. Uh, she's uh, out there fetching great stories like that. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to ch- taste one of those little bananas, but I recommend you do if you get it. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's eight minutes to one. Send me a text message on 0487 993 triple two we will be heading to the markets before one o'clock and you know if watching the slide in the ecky is a bit depressing for you right now i do have a sale result 
that will hopefully make you smile. A pen of Santa Gertruda steers at Dolby has made well above the average price today, but it won't be the seller pocketing that cash. It will be the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Rick and Alice Greenup from Eidsvold Station donated the animals for the charity auction. Rick says it was a great day to be in the yards. The Queensland Country Life Winner Pen of Steers competition um, was wound up today and our, the final stage of that is the selling of the, um, of the six steers which, uh, which we donated to the, basically to the Royal Flying Doctor Services. Um, so that's where we've been this morning. So uh, how did it go? How, did the, uh, how was the market, I should say, for these, these steers that are, are raising money for such a good cause? Well, we probably don't need to talk about the rest of the market. She's down. <laughs> yeah, she's not doing great. But how's the charity market? She's down. The charity market was just awesome. And I want to thank uh, first Kirk Wachner, who, who purchased the steers um, on behalf of Oakey Beef Holdings. And also uh, a shout-out to JBS for uh, John Norris for um, hunting him along there. So I really, really appreciate the support for these guys. But basically, you know, the Bullock market's about... Uh, at about two dollars sixty, and we got three dollars sixty one today. So a dollar up on the um, on the market, and um, it's just great that everybody gets behind this this cause. So how much does that mean you've raised? Well, two thousand five hundred and forty dollars per beast. Uh, multi- multiply that by six. Not the best at the mass, Kelly. Um, <laughs> I think I, I think Alice might have done it here for me at some stage. So I'll check it out. Fifteen thousand two hundred and forty dollars. If that's um, um, all works out. Yeah, that's a healthy injection for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. Uh, it must make you feel good to see the the animals do so well, but then to know that uh, where that money's going to go. Oh, absolutely. I think I think um, you know it gets so well supported that the flying doctors because they're just. They're just, you know, we need them in the bush. We mm. need to have them there. So I think any opportunity we can get to support them, we do. So, well, so it was a great result today. Um, a lot of people involved. We, we thank all those people. And it wasn't just us. It was a combined effort. And, um, and it's, um, it was a lot of fun in there this morning. Yeah. How are things looking around the place at Cumbia and in Eidsvold for you at the moment uh, as we're, you know, in the thick of, of bull selling season? Yeah, we're average. I guess we're below average, really, if I'm honest. Um, but um, I guess um, you know, bull selling season is, is is upon us and right into it. And um, and I, I think um, you know, with the genetics game, we play a long term game. So we're we're in it for the long haul. And what you what you know, we always think that what you purchase today is not going to create your income for a few you know you know two or three years time down the track. So I guess uh, looking forward, everyone. You know, everything in the bush is very, very good, except for um, except for this little dry spell at the moment. You know, the market will be good going forward in the next couple of years. So I, I, we've got a lot to be positive, positive about. Um, it's just this little little dry that's uh, just got us at the moment, which I'm sure we'll get out of. A nice little boost to the, the positivity today, I'm sure. Yeah, I think so. I think I think just lightening, lightening it up a little around the yards mm. was nice and, um, and uh, having a chat to... Uh, to everybody out there was a was um was um a good good break from it all yeah almost feels like a day off (laughs) (laughs) don't you you tell alice (laughs) i won't back back and into it when i get home so thank you you heard the man no one tell alice that's rick green up from eidsvold station all right let's get into the markets $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $60. $
Trevor Hess was also at Dolby. Here are the rest of the results. Good afternoon. The supply of stock at Dolby today reduced by 2,381 head to 4,763. Included in the lineup this week was the annual Queensland Country Life Pen of Charity Steers for the Royal Fly and Doctor Service. The good panel of buyers in attendance included southern operators. Prices for yearling steers and heifers at the time of this interim report have sold to a cheaper trend of 10 to 20 cents and up to 30. However, the better end of the cows sold very close to the levels of the previous week. Medium weight yearling steers to feed made to 314 to average 296. Heavy weight yearling steers to feed average 285 made to 294. Medium weight yearling heifers to feed made to 250 to average 227. Heavy weight yearling heifers to feed made to 264 to average 234. Handful to restockers at 280. The pen of certified grain-fed bullocks with the proceeds going to the Royal Flying Doctor Service made to 361 to return $2,540 a head. Heavyweight three-score cows averaged 207. The best of the heavyweights made to 228 to average 224. This has been Trevor Hess from MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thank you, Trevor. Over to the Charters Towers Selling Centre, here's Mick Kingham. Good afternoon. Numbers lifted by 600 for a yarding of 2,028 cattle. Quality was very mixed with some well-finished pens of cows and bullocks, along with an increased number of northern bulls and smaller mixed lines of store steers and heifers. A full panel of processors returned, which helped demand, along with two live exporters, regular feeders and opportunity restockers. Cattle were drawn from Mount Isa to Georgetown and south to the local area. At the time of this interim report, only prime cattle have been sold, with bullocks lifting 6 to 16 cents, cows improving by 6 cents and bulls were firm. Grains ears above 400 kilos to the trade, topped at 230, to average 212. Steers to feed sold at 212, to average 207. And grown heifers to the trade, topped at 228, to average 218. An increased supply of heavy full mouth bullocks to export slaughter sold at 252 cents multiple times, to average 229 to 246. Medium weight through seal cows sold at 198, to average 187. Prime heavyweight cows topped at 208, to average 207. And heavy bulls to live export reached 274 cents, to average 258. This is Mick Kinger from Charles Towers, the National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks, Mick. Off to Grace Mere, 2,361 were yarded. Here's Richard Thompson. 2,361 head were penned today at CQLX Grace Mere sale, 51 head less than last week. Quality is fair to good, with condition lightning for each, off each week. There was a big percentage of the yarding from coastal and near coastal areas north and south of Rockhampton and also a good line of grey Brahman heifers from west to Clermont. To date, there is a lot of red ink through most of the averages. Yearling steers have averaged 214 to 269 cents for those that have sold so far to restockers. Grown steers sold to processors topped at 249 and average 236 to 241. Live ex buyers paid 241 average for theirs and those to feed sold from 284 on average from 234 to 271. Trade heifers averaged 226 cents a kilo. Heavy cows averaged 202, quite a decrease from last week. Thank you very much. That's it for the Country Hour. Stay safe. I see a storm coming through Landsborough at the moment. Thanks for the text for that from Phil at Bly Bly. Time for the news now. It is one o'clock.